0: Election night, 2016. Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin had been campaigning for Hillary Clinton. They watched on in horror as the coverage unfolded on America's ABC network.
1: I just want to show
2: you the scene here behind me, if you can see it. We just saw them pack up the confetti machines that they were planning to blow out here. Um, This hall is completely empty. Complete radio
1: silence, which tells you what they're thinking right now.
0: Over at the Trump party, Fox News was describing a very different scene. And they're screaming again, call it, call it, call it. The Trump camp recognises that they are about to take over. Progressives in America were in a state of shock. Isaac Bloom was a community organiser at the time.
3: In those first couple of days, a, a real mood that, um, you know, that we were just done for. Like, maybe we could get a um, an infrastructure bill passed that wouldn't be totally miserable. But otherwise, we were just going to see constant and deliberate destruction of everything that we hold dear. And there was really nothing that we could do about it.
0: It was emotional, too.
3: The other thing about the mood, certainly that night and then for days afterwards, was just a feeling of loneliness um, or being alone.
0: Today on Changemakers, I'm in Washington, D.C., where last November the entire country was rocked after Donald Trump, an ageing narcissist, became president, despite getting three million fewer votes than his opponent. This is the story of how a small group of people channeled that despair into a Google Doc. Yes, a Google Doc. And this is the story of how that little document has ended up being a genuine thorn in Trump's side. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. Supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney, they break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at Sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. In the days and weeks after the election, people around the country were despondent particularly in Washington, D.C. Political insiders had been keeping close track of what Trump had said.
3: All of the promises that he made um, on the campaign trail, those were all going to come true, and they were all going to come true immediately, kind of like on day one.
0: Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin worked in D.C. They'd been staffers for Democrat members of Congress, and they'd been there when Obama passed the Affordable Care Act, the health care bill that everyone knows as Obamacare.
3: And at that time, what happened was that um, they were doing this sort of public comment period and congresspeople were doing uh, town halls and taking in comments from their constituents. And, you know, what? what's called the, the Tea Party was just beginning to come about.
0: The Tea Party was an anti-government, anti-Obama, conservative social movement. It looked and felt like a grassroots insurgency, into the Republican Party. But in reality, it was funded by billionaires who wanted to pull the Republicans even further to the right. Leo and Ezra had a front row seat to its rise.
3: And they were just getting beaten up at these town halls, just yelled at and um, and made to defend everything that they, they had said publicly and any idea that they might... Uh, vote for the Affordable Care Act. They were getting booed. They were getting um, ridiculed, um, and it was the first time that kind of stuff had ever really happened in any, certainly in any coordinated way. It was eye-opening uh, for Leah and and Ezra.
0: Leah and Ezra felt they had to do something, anything, but the problem was they didn't know quite what. So they rang up some of their friends and said, "Come over." Let's chat this through.
4: We weren't sure what we were going to do, but we, we felt like we needed to do something. Uh, and that was, that was not a productive meeting. There was a lot of crying and, you know, people, nobody, nobody came away with any answers.
0: That's Leah Greenberg talking at the University of Chicago in November 2017. Leah soon realized that she and Ezra weren't alone.
4: But we had this realization over the next few weeks, which was that those meetings were happening everywhere, uh, all around the country. People... People who were already politically active and people who had not previously considered themselves politically active um, were coming together on, on Facebook, uh, in, you know, on social media, in community centres, in living rooms, all over the place. Uh, and they were saying, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do, but we got to do something.
0: Progressive people were getting together and talking amongst themselves spontaneously. That was exciting. But the conversations were pretty depressing. They needed a way to take all these conversations that thousands of people were having every day and the energy behind them and turn them into something productive. They needed a plan. On holidays over Thanksgiving, they began discussing what had made the Republican side of politics so powerful under Obama. In particular, they thought about the Tea Party, the quote-unquote grassroots populist insurgency into the Republicans that preached a radical anti-government message what it made them so effective.
3: And as they were sort of having this conversation with their friend over drinks um, in this bar in Austin, they were saying like, look, the thing that made that powerful was not that those folks who were wearing tri-cornered hats and, and saying, don't tread on me. The thing that made it powerful was that they were showing up where members of Congress were and they were making their voices heard and they were doing it in a concentrated and ongoing way. And they were doing it in a way that made these representatives have to double double back and really look at their positions on things and, in some cases, really change their minds.
0: It was the tactics that the Tea Party used to intervene into politics that made them so powerful. And so Leah and Ezra thought, what if we broke down the Tea Party's tactics, turned them on their head, and used them against Trump? They
3: sort of said right there, like, you know... There's no reason that that can't work for the progressives. We don't have to just take whatever we get from the Trump administration and there's no reason to assume that whatever they want to do is to be is going to be what happens. We can reverse engineer what what the folks in in the Tea Party did because it happened to us and we could put it put it into some kind of I don't know, some kind of guide or something and whatever we'll publish it online and people can do with it whatever they want.
0: So Leon and Ezra did what many progressives around the world do every day. They started a Google Doc.
3: They sort of got together with a group of other friends. Many of them were former congressional folks um, or for, former congressional aides. And they wrote this guide over the course of the next couple of weeks.
0: The Google Doc called for a defensive strategy. It argued that people should build a national resistance to Trump's agenda. At a time when winning things would be hard, it said people should focus on stopping bad things from happening. It called for a big no campaign, something that a lot of people could get behind. Then they identified who should lead this resistance. They applied one lesson from their experience from the Tea Party.
4: But immediately after the election, we realised that there might be... There might be a lesson from that time that, you know, a small group of people organizing locally could actually really have a powerful impact on their elected officials. And through that, they could have a powerful impact on the Trump agenda.
0: Ultimately, the Google Doc, 23 pages in length, had a simple message about power.
4: Nothing that Donald Trump does in the next four years is ultimately... Um, determined by Donald Trump. It's determined by whether your elected officials go along with Donald Trump or whether they rein him in, uh, whether they advance his agenda or whether they work to stop it. And you organizing locally, advocating in public and demanding to be represented can actually have a really powerful impact on whether they think that's in their political self-interest to do.
0: The document was very practical about how to do this.
4: We basically went over some some simple principles of how you organise and how you put pressure on your elected officials. Um, We said, you know, go to public events, go to their office, um, get the local media involved, talk about what they're actually doing, talk about whether you like that or whether it will hurt you. Um, Get attention on them, watch them like a hawk, and don't let up.
0: They emphasised that people didn't need a big group or anyone with previous political experience or expertise. Anyone could do this.
3: They could just get a few friends together and, and actually go and, and interact with their representative in a way that, that could be caught on camera or shared or, um, or replicated. And that practical application is really one of the biggest things that attracted people to
0: the guide. The Google Doc was ready to be shared. Ezra tweeted it out early one evening in mid-December. So we put all that together.
4: Um, into our 23-page Google Doc. We put it online. Um, We got it out before Christmas because we wanted our friends to have read it. And, you know, when they went home to see their families and somebody said, hey, what can I do? They would be able to send them to this guide. And we thought that, you know, in six months, somebody would email us and they would say, hey, I used your guide and it worked. And we would be like so excited. That would have been success. (laughs) That's not quite what happened. Within a couple of hours of putting the guide online, we realized that something much bigger was
3: happening.
0: As Isaac tells it.
3: Folks were sharing it kind of left and right with their friends. And it went viral in D.C. very quickly. And uh, a couple of famous people retweeted them. It was enough that on the first morning after they tweeted it, they had 300 emails in their inbox saying, this is so exciting. This really gives me hope.
0: And the emails kept coming
3: first they tried to answer all the emails themselves and then they realized this is you know, there's no cuz as they were answering emails more were coming in um and so they got they started doing email parties and they got friends to come over and answer emails with them and and they started to very quickly sort of delegate specific roles and pieces to people
0: by january people started forming into groups a website was put up where people could register their group so others could find them and join. And it kept growing. For a while, they thought they could handle it with a team of volunteers.
4: We had the benefit that lots of people had at the beginning of the year. We had a, a huge number of very talented people who were desperate to do something. And so we were able to build pretty quickly a volunteer corps of about 150 people who were working between you know, 20 to 40 hours each. Uh, some of them pulling suspiciously long like lunch breaks and um, ducking out early and, you know, staying up very late to, to do that uh, and and build out sort of a decentralized structure that allowed a large number of volunteers to engage on each of the core things that we were trying to do.
0: But every time they thought they had it under control, a new opportunity would come up and the network would grow again.
3: At some point in, I think it's January, um, Ezra got a, uh, an op-ed Published in the New York Times, and you know it had already gone to a lot of people. Um, it had already gained a lot of traction, but that was the first thing that um, it went from like hundreds of groups to thousands of groups. Like they gained a couple of thousand groups right right around the time that was published.
0: It wasn't sustainable. Success was taking its toll on Leah and Ezra.
3: They basically weren't sleeping at all anymore and were barely doing their real jobs. They were just kind of doing this full time at night.
0: In early January, Leah and Ezra bit the bullet and decided to create an organization.
3: They would explicitly said in the guide, we're not going to create an organization. The important thing is that you create a local group. But in, uh, in January is when uh, Ezra actually quit his job and started doing this full-time because it just it just had become clear that it was just impossible to support all of these groups without having some real full-time staff who were dedicated to doing that.
0: And it was lucky he did, because the growth it experienced so far was just the start. By now it was mid-January. Trump was about to be inaugurated. If Trump is the reality television president, it's perhaps only appropriate that the crystallising moment for his opposition... Would be thanks to television.
3: Uh, Ezra was on Rachel Maddow for the first time. And again, that really just kind of exploded.
0: Rachel Maddow hosts a popular national television show on one of America's largest television networks. Tanya Lucan, who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, watches that show.
1: So I I was raised in the Midwest in uh, between Minnesota and Nebraska and um, I've never been involved
0: in politics before or, or any kind of social change. The election had taken its toll on Tanya. She's a doer, she's trained as an accountant and she works as an entrepreneur and the lack of power she was feeling was stifling.
1: In January um, by then I was really frustrated at not being able to do anything because professionally being really efficient is very important to me and not having a way to be efficient to enact change was it's 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 almost debilitating for my personality I, I can't stand
0: it at all so it's very it was very frustrating then in January one night she was relaxing on the couch and switched over to MSNBC This is Indivisible. This is kind of, I think, that it's kind of the
3: secret sauce that explains what is bubbling up as what may be the start of the anti-Trump movement. It's called Indivisible.
1: I was watching Rachel Maddow. Uh, She has a show on MSNBC, and she was interviewing Ezra Levin, and he was talking about the guide and how um, he described it basically as a way to get the attention of members of Congress. It was the week before the, the Women's March was on Saturday. And that same evening, I went onto their website and I read the guide. And I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's, it's a checklist. And as an accountant, a checklist is, it's like a drug to me. Like, I just want to go down the list and mark everything off.
0: The timing was perfect. The Women's March was in a couple of days.
1: The day before, so Inauguration Day, I set up a Facebook page and I set up an email address and I printed out a hundred flyers that said, I'm going to follow the Indivisible Guide. If you want to join me, contact me here. And I passed out my hundred flyers at the Women's March here in Phoenix. It was big. There was about 30,000 people there.
0: And now comes the test. Would anyone get in touch?
1: And then I watched it grow.
0: But building a group wasn't just about finding people. The guide was really clear about this. If your group is going to work, it needs leaders. And when I say leaders, I don't mean the type that show up in a Hollywood movie and give great speeches. I mean real community leaders, the kind of people who are good at working with other people and who are prepared to do the work to make the ideas in the guide come to life where they live.
1: One day after the Women's March, so the very next day, I had six friends over and we had cake and coffee and divided up tasks kind of in the, within the guide because it talks about um, basically if you're going to start a group, kind of cover these things and assign roles
0: and tasks and things. That's how Indivisible Groups got started. They mixed a little bit of digital organising using platforms like Facebook. They added a touch of outreach in the streets to connect with protesters and friendly community organisations. Then to finish it off, there was a lot of planning amongst a smaller group of actively committed people. The experience in Phoenix was repeated all across the country. Within about a month of the inauguration, there were over 6,000, yes, I said 6,000, indivisible groups across the country. Back in a moment. Building power to change the world is a dynamic process, which means it's always helpful to discuss your strategies and refine them, pick apart what's going right and reflect on how you could be more effective. That's why we've set up the Changemakers Masterclasses. They're small seminars with a maximum of 50 people, presented by me, Amanda Tattersall. We spend a whole day taking a deep dive into one aspect of changemaking. In the first season, we're looking at power, how to build it and wield it, as well as examining the best and worst practices from around the world. We're holding the first ones in Australia in February 2019 in association with Sydney University's Policy Lab. And then we're heading to Melbourne and several cities in the US and the United Kingdom later in the year. So check out the schedule at changemakerspodcast.org slash masterclasses and sign up today. Maximise your impact with Changemakers Masterclasses. So now Indivisible is an organisation. It's raising money and hiring staff. But now they face another problem. How do you create a sense of coordination and connection across 6,000 groups where everyone is a volunteer? Their first plan was to email everyone.
3: They had started sending out weekly emails to folks just sort of saying, here's the stuff to focus on for this week. Here is the, you know, here's kind of what's happening in Congress. Here's what you need to know. Here's how, you know, here are the top, you know, top tactics this week to really fight back. And those emails were being opened at a rate that no email professional that I know of has ever seen, you know, 30, 40% open rate, um, click throughs that were also like four or five times industry standards. It was really, it was really astounding. It was like people who really actively cared a ton about,
0: about it. The emails were useful, but really, they were just scratching the surface. Indivisible needed some people with organising experience, the kind of people who had worked with lots of leaders and groups before. That's how Leah and Ezra met Isaac. Isaac liked tough challenges. His last job was to take on gun nuts at the NRA. We did a story about them last series. Isaac was a professional organiser. So when Isaac saw Indivisible... He understood they were taking the idea of local groups to a whole new level.
3: To me, the the opportunity to work with an organization whose, whose stated mission is to support citizens in building their own power, that's kind of like my dream come true job.
0: He was meeting Leah and Ezra to talk about gun control, but the conversation quickly shifted to Indivisible. How is it connecting and supporting all these groups? Tell me about
3: your organizing model. And he was like, well... Still, sort of working that out. I was like, I have a lot of ideas. At some point during that conversation, I kind of wrote them this like eight-page thing of like, when you hire an organizing director, here's what I think they should do. Um, And at some point, I I, like very quickly after that, I was like, really? I think what I mean is, I want you to hire me. (laughs) I think that's what you should do.
0: So now, building the capacity of six thousand groups was Isaac's problem, and it would require some out of the box thinking because many of the usual answers that a typical organisation would offer to this challenge weren't going to work. The first response would normally be, hire staff to help the local groups.
3: No regular organising team is going to be able to work with this many people. You're not going to hire enough organisers to work with 6,000 groups. Even if you had tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, you just, that would just be dumb it's not a good way to go about doing it.
0: So hiring staff was out. Another approach would normally be to work slowly and build a network of hundreds or thousands of leaders who can manage with very little staff support. That's been the traditional community organising approach. But Isaac didn't have time. He needed support in place right now. So instead, His plan was to encourage groups to connect with other groups and create a decentralized network.
3: The best way that you can make sure that these folks have the support that they need, that they have somebody to talk to, that they are able to get trained and have some mentorship is by actually connecting them to each other and doing peer-to-peer work to make sure that they are able to learn from each other, that you are surfacing their best practices, that you're surfacing their innovation, and that you're connecting them to each other in a way that will allow them to build up their skills and build up their leadership and bring in new leaders and that they're doing that with each other rather than with some sort of organiser telling them what to do.
0: They built the world's biggest buddy system. And to smooth it all out, they developed a bunch of peer-to-peer digital tools to help people connect. The model met people where they were at. People were tired with politicians telling them what to do. An approach where some staffer in D.C. was barking orders was not going to work. The approach made it the responsibility of Indivisible leaders themselves to make things happen. If people wanted change, they needed to step up, like Tanya in Phoenix.
1: So I started um, looking out because on, by then Indivisible had updated their website and there was a place that you could register your groups And I was able to see all the other groups, and so we started reaching out to other group leaders, um, and I invited them all over to my house. And so at that first initial meeting that we had of kind of progressive and liberal group leaders in Arizona, there was probably—we represented maybe like 40,000 people in Arizona— I was freaking out that day. I was like, I couldn't believe the people that were coming. Um, That One of the organisers from the Women's March was there. The Arizona Democratic Party was there. um, Stronger Together Arizona
0: was there. Remember, Tanya had never been involved in politics before. But thanks to the Google Doc and Indivisible's commitment to being led from the ground up, she was at the centre of Arizonian politics. But what were they going to do with all that people power? What issue should they pick? For indivisible leaders like Chris Prezold in Seattle, there was only one choice.
2: What all of the Republicans have campaigned on is that they were going to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act that was enacted back in Obama's time. And that is just their mission.
0: The Tea Party's flagship goal had been to stop better health care. They had lost, and it had become law. For Indivisible, protecting healthcare from Trump was going to be their first big test. But this campaign had a completely different feel to it. Indivisible groups weren't waiting for someone in Washington, D.C. to tell them, it's time to get started. They had the guide. They were already taking action. Across the country, people were confronting Congress people, organising protests, doing media stunts, and imagining their first town hall meetings. Chris's group jumped out of the gates fast.
2: We had our first rally at our congressman's office the Wednesday before inauguration happened. So before Trump even took office, we were already fighting. And there were 40 people at that rally on a rainy Seattle day.
0: It was a long shot, but Leah Greenberg realised if they were going to have any chance of saving affordable health care at a national level, Local action was key.
4: There are sort of two pieces of the strategy, right? One is about mobilizing locally and affecting the individual decisions of your elected officials. The other is about the broader political narrative and generating the kind of heat and um, opposition that turns this from, you know, a partisan thing to a wildly unpopular thing that's, you know, universally reviled. And that creates the space for um, a lot, a broader coalition of people to oppose a bill
0: like this. So the first step. Was to create a general feeling in the public arena that healthcare should be protected. And the second step was then to zero in on specific senators and congress people who might be persuaded to vote to protect healthcare.
4: The idea was, you know, make make the entire thing so unpopular that there's a quiet constituency of people who concluded it's not worth their time to pass it.
0: Isaac supported this two-track approach by dividing his staff into two different teams.
3: For instance, on healthcare it's good to have a set of people who have relationships with some of the key folks in those states who are working with them to kind of make sure that we're able to make targeted actions happen all over those states um, so that we can really influence legislation in the best possible way. And so the thing that I brought in was a sense that we need to do both distributed organizing, but we needed to overlay that with um, a sort of traditional relational organizing team as well that was able to do more targeted work with some set of folks.
0: Okay, that was a little complicated, but it's important. So let me try and explain. When Isaac says distributed organising, he's referring to the kind of support you'd provide to the 6,000 groups in general. He'd provide a few staff who could help with budding groups up and providing a little advice. But for the groups in places where there's a political representative who might vote to save healthcare, he would provide greater support. He called it relational organising. In those places, organisers might travel to meet, plan and provide training to the groups. So what did all that mean on the ground? Chris was from a non-targeted area in Seattle. So accompanied by a strong group of volunteers and some light support from the Indivisible Mothership, they used the guide as their main support and her team planned a town hall meeting for July 2017.
2: So our vision for that event was for it to be a positive and uplifting event, just to uh, provide information to our members and to m- people of the community about what the heck is going on in Washington, D.C. Um, and at the time, the health care um, legislation was up in the air.
0: That's right. Even with the Republicans controlling both houses of Congress... There was a feeling that healthcare could be saved. This is because, for some people, saving healthcare was literally a battle between life and death. At the town hall, people talk about why this issue is so important to them. One woman who uh,
2: says that if the Affordable Care Act here, um is repealed that she will stop all of her um, life-saving cancer treatment that she's undergoing right now. So she came up and spoke and it was so poignant. When she got off the stage I gave her a hug and she was absolutely shaking and I was in tears and I think everyone in the room was in tears. After they had set the stage,
0: a politician was invited to speak.
2: Finally we um, had the congresswoman come up and speak about um, you know, just what she is doing in Washington, D.C., to fight back.
0: What else could she say? When people are well organised and in relationship with their political representative, the representative has little option but to listen. It was a lesson straight out of the Indivisible Guide. And it showed that this kind of local action could have spectacular effects on Democrats as well as Republicans. People power could really push people to be better representatives. But not every politician in the Seattle area was so engaged. One Republican congressman indicated he wouldn't be attending any town hall meetings. So the Seattle group had to use a different lesson from the guide to engage him.
2: So we call his office every day and uh, we call about, you know, whatever the topic is that's before the House of Representatives here in the U.S., um, and we ask him to vote this way or that way. We also uh, are very active on social media, um, holding him accountable to different votes he's taken. Um, We um, write letters to the editor. Um, We wrote so many that he ended up writing one in response.
0: He has an excuse for avoiding town hall meetings.
2: So he he suggests that the reason why he doesn't have town halls is because he's, you know, more than willing to meet with people one-on-one in his office. And it's always in a very controlled environment and you have to make an appointment, you know, however long in advance. Um, So we've also done that. Quite a few people have met with him in his office, including
0: myself. At one meeting, they got an insight into what he thought of them. He said
2: that, when the tea party was around, he was under some pressure. He said, but it was nothing like this. So I thought that was really great. It
0: was a lot of pressure.
2: He, you know, has come out in the media and talked about how he took, his office took 700 phone calls in one day. It led to a result. Um, I guess after all of the pressure we've been putting on him, he decided not to run. If, you, if you're if you not going to do what we're asking you do, to do to fight Back against Donald Trump's agenda, then we'll actually find someone else who will.
0: Amazing. Think about it. Like Tanya, Chris had never been involved in politics before the November 2016 election. And now she was leading a group that was turfing out inattentive representatives. There were places in America that had political representatives who could determine the fate of affordable health care, such as Arizona. High-profile representatives like former Senator John McCain and another important Republican Senator, Jeffrey Flake, were both from Arizona. Tanya Lucan had previously voted for Senator Flake. Her decision had been based on what she'd seen in the news. But now, because she was part of Indivisible, she got to see him up close. It started when a friend sent a letter. She sent me an
1: email because she had sent a letter to Senator Flake's office and Got an email back that was this canned kind of rhetoric response about how, like, you know, healthcare should be affordable for everyone. And I don't know, Planned Parenthood kills babies and kittens or something. I mean, whatever it was, it was really, it was rhetoric and it wasn't an answer to what she was asking. And so she said to me, if that man had to walk a mile in my panties, he would not vote for this healthcare repeal.
0: That thought led to a crazy idea. They decided to string up hundreds of panties outside Senator Flake's office. You know, as a media stunt. So, like, logistically, we all figured it out, um, and a
1: bunch of them, uh, the committee members, that you know, they dyed a bunch of very large women's panties pink, <laughs> and we figured out how to string them up on the light poles. And we, we flew for probably the entire time they were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act.
0: In most campaigns I know, if people were going off script and improvising like this in a battleground state, someone would have reined them in. But not here. These folks had total ownership over the movement they were building. They could hang as many panties as they wanted, and they would continue to call the shots. The Indivisible Guide said that direct contact with senators was really important, so a bunch of them went to one of Flake's town hall meetings.
1: People kind of tried to hold him to task and make him actually answer questions, which he would never do. Um, And then they would just turn off the mic and go to the next person.
0: It wasn't going to be easy. So back to the guide. It had another idea to be on the lookout for chances where you could confront a representative in public.
1: He flies in every evening, every Thursday evening on um, an American Airlines flight. And someone was on the flight with him, recognized him, and texted one of the group leaders here in town or messaged her and said, He's on our flight. We land at this time at this terminal. And so he was greeted um, coming out from security um, by a bunch of people that wanted to talk about health care.
0: Senator Flake was hard to access. As a Republican, he was reflexively suspicious of Indivisible in the same way that Democrats were about the Tea Party. And he proved hard to shift. Even with the support of organiser staff, the local group only moved him slightly. While he began to use the rhetoric of affordable healthcare when responding to Indivisible, he didn't change his vote. But someone else in the state did look more open to change former Senator John McCain. Towards the end of his life, Senator McCain lived in the political stratosphere. He was highly revered and hard to access. But he was frustrated by the politics of the time.
1: I do think he does not like hyper-partisanism, which is happening here in the United States, and it's it's terrible because we're so divided politically that nothing gets done, and the only that, you know, the entire country is suffering because of it.
0: Those divisions were epitomised by the debate about affordable health care. McCain was definitely engaged. And he was completely aware that there was a growing constituency of people across the country who were worried too, thanks to Indivisible. And by the way, Senator McCain passed away in August 2018, and I did these interviews while he was still alive.
1: Yeah, he definitely knows that we're there um, because I'm sure, like, we we call his office, we show up at his office. You know, I go there every Tuesday and ask the same four questions. So I know he knows we exist. Um, I'm not sure if we factored into his decision-making process.
0: We will never know. In the lead-up to the Senate vote, there was so much going on for Senator McCain. He had just been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. At the same time, There was so much going on with Indivisible.
3: So because of our geographic spread and the fact that we have at least two groups in every congressional district, we're able to put pressure on every single senator at once. Because of that, we were also able to put pressure on every single Republican senator. And at every opportunity, every time they went home, every time they went everywhere, every time they answered the phone, they were constantly just being hammered by constituents and it was the first time for a lot of them they'd ever experienced that most most of these senators come from ruby red states where they don't they don't ever get pressure from progressives and now all of a sudden they were just constantly getting pressure you know it's like if you press on a wall everywhere you know there's going to be a crack you don't know where the crack is going to show up but if you put pressure on the entire wall
0: this dual strategy of local action and building a national narrative was escalating healthcare Into the defining national issue. It was an escalation that just might reach the political stratosphere. In July 2017, the repeal bill was on the floor of the Senate. Senator McCain's vote would be crucial. CNN reported it at the time. Senator John McCain, just days removed from his cancer diagnosis, stunning the chamber, Turning the thumbs down on the repeal bill, it happened just... He voted away. no. The repeal bill was lost. Healthcare was saved. It was unbelievable.
3: What we did was put enough pressure on the Republican Party that, you know, the, the couple of moderates who, who did have to, to answer to folks in their state went first. So Murkowski and, and Collins were, were two of the sort of first folks to go on the first healthcare bill. And we created a perfect hero opportunity for John McCain, who was thinking about legacy and thinking about, you know, what is he going to do in these last votes that are available to him? And that hero opportunity was too good for him to pass up.
0: It would be wrong to say that the victory was only the work of Indivisible. So many groups and movements made it happen. And it would be equally wrong to not recognise the two Republican women, Senator Lisa Mikowski and Senator Susan Collins, who also voted against the bill and never seemed to get quite the same level of credit. But it is certainly fair to say that Indivisible, a movement that had been born learning from the Tea Party, made its first mark keeping affordable health care in place. The healthcare repeal battle was just the first chapter in a movement that continues to grow. Indivisible is still working through some pretty big political conundrums. Things like, how do you relate to political parties? And when should resistance shift into solutions? But the biggest challenge of all is how do you sustain this network? How do you maintain momentum over the months and years ahead? Leah Greenberg has thought a lot about this one.
4: So I think there are there are three ways I think about that this question. Um, one is agency, second is community, third is training. Um, so the first thing I think burns people out is having a sense that this is happening and they're powerless. So a key part of this is, you know, understanding and recognizing the wins along the way, understanding and recognizing that over the course of this time, people have actually genuinely made um, made an impact. It hasn't, it can't stop all of the damage that's happening. But that said, you know, there have been there have been major successes. If we had told, you know, someone in November of 2016 that this is where we would be on the legislative front, that would be, that would be a shock to them. Um, so I think a big part of it is helping people recognize that that their action has an impact. The second piece um, is community. I think that it's easy to feel burnt out when you're not part of uh, something, when you don't feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. And having places that are in person where you're building relationships and you're working together is like a really critical part of how you actually keep that feeling and keep that momentum going. And the third is training. So. Um, I think a lot of folks got active who, you know, it's like a meeting that you went to that uh, the agenda dragged on and like one guy was dominating it the entire time and like nobody really knew, uh, you know, and then you didn't go back, right? So it's the things that, it's things that nuts and bolts organizing training can actually help a lot with when you're thinking about how do you, how do you make new people come in and feel engaged? How do you make people feel valued? How do you move people up the ladder of leadership development? All of that work is actually really core to keeping people engaged because it goes to their sense of agency and it goes to the communities they create.
0: Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes and catch up on Series 1. Changemakers is produced by me. Yep, I'm super busy. Written by Charles Firth, Amanda Tattersall and Amy Farrell. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisations are Sydney University Policy Lab, who we could not do this without, as well as Uniting, The Sunrise Project, Australians for Marriage Equality, and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories.